This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. With me in the SCANA studio today is Professor Jim Underwood. He is Distinguished Professor of Constitutional Law Emeritus at the University of South Carolina. And Jim has come out with a very interesting book. It's entitled Deadly Censorship, subtitle Murder, Honor, and Freedom of the Press. And it deals with the murder of N.G. Gonzalez, who was editor of the state newspaper, by the lieutenant governor of South Carolina, James Tillman. Jim, welcome to the journal. Thank you. What made you decide to write this book? I mean, you've, you've got this wonderful four-volume series on constitutional law in South Carolina. What attracted you to this particular case? Well, several things. I wanted something that would allow me to tell a dramatic story, use more of a narrative than an analytical approach to writing. Uh, and this certainly does that. It's got a very dramatic trial with uh, all the elements of a good uh, law and order, a Perry Mason or something of that uh, nature. And in addition, this one event uh, allows me to have an entry into a lot of the uh, social mores of the time, some of the ethics of the time, and, and particularly the politics of the time, because this was a very political trial with a lot of key political figures involved as uh, lawyers, witnesses, a judge, and things of that nature. Maybe we ought to set the scene for our, for our listeners out there. We're looking at turn of the century South Carolina. 1903. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We have had the so-called Tillman Revolution in South Carolina beginning in 1890 right. when Benjamin Ryan Tillman was elected governor, later elected U.S. senator, overturning the old conservative order right. of the Hamptons and so forth. And Ben Tillman's brother was a congressman from Saluda County, and he had a son, James, right. who in 1900 was elected lieutenant governor of South Carolina. Now, let's talk about Jim Tillman personally, and, and not necessarily from the view of the state newspaper, but from Im impartial sources. Well, he was a very talented person, a person of very striking appearance, very tall, sort of chiseled bone structure, very fluid speaker. But in that race that he won in 1900, he used a lot of racist appeals he was largely supported by the people who served with him in the Spanish-American War. He was a, a colonel of a South Carolina regiment in that conflict, and uh, they formed, uh, the people from that regiment, a very hardcore group of supporters, and he continued to have support for them all along. But, but he was making those uh, racist appeals, and uh, when we get into this 1902 governor's race where he was trying to get elected. He had a, a plank that was uh, not formed by a progressive program or a program that was practical and designed to improve the state and to carry it forward. It was more of a, an attack on uh, the other people running. Uh, it was a kind of a personal politics. And that was matched by the personal journalism of N.G. Gonzalez uh, at the state newspaper, who had been quarreling with uh, Jim Tillman for many years, uh, since uh, around 1890. Uh, and that had simmered and uh, flown into a blaze from time to time. And uh, here it was in this race in 1902, the governor's race, where Jim Tillman was defeated and he blamed the stinging editorials of N.G. Gonzalez uh, for causing that defeat. So uh, he'd been brooding about it for quite some time. And uh, it had been maybe five months uh, since the last of these stinging editorials, once the election was over and uh, Jim Tillman came in fourth in the primary, uh, they seemed to have ceased, but Tillman didn't stop thinking about it. Uh, he was brooding about it. And then we come up to uh, January of 1903, and we're about to have the inauguration of the new governor. Of course, Tillman still thought he should have been one taking the oath. And we get to a time where he would have to lead the state Senate into a recounting of the votes to make sure that they were officially correct. And then he would have to attend the inauguration to uh, see Governor Hayward inaugurated, the man who won right, the race. All right, well, let's stop it because you mentioned in, that Tillman really didn't have a platform. That's right. He just attacked everybody else. 
Duncan Clinch Hayward actually had he did a platform of what he would like to do to move South Carolina forward, particularly right. in the area of education. It was a very uh, strong uh, educational-oriented platform that Duncan Clinch Hayward uh, had. But uh, what did Tillman do in answer to that? He pointed out that uh, Hayward was a rice farmer, uh, but he was letting his overseer run the farm, and he said, well, we shouldn't take a good rice farmer and t- turn him into a poor politician. Uh, so it was that kind of kind of clever soapbox kind of repartee that he was specializing in during the campaign rather than this is what I'll do for South Carolina. Now, the state newspaper, which, of course, was founded to oppose the Tillman right. regime in the 1890s, wasn't the only newspaper that supported Hayward. Tillman didn't have a whole lot of support in the press. No, he didn't. Not even from the Tillman press. (laughs) That's right. There there were several prominent Tillmanite papers that that didn't support him. And uh, I think it was uh, Patricia McNeely in her history of South Carolina journalism came up with a a list of, a long list of newspapers that opposed Jim Tillman for various reasons. Mm -hmm. And uh, many of these uh, had been favorable toward uh, Ben Tillman, his uh, Mm -hmm. uncle, then uh, United States senator. And of course, his father, George Dionysius uh, Tillman, was highly thought of by a lot of people. But the nephew of Ben and the son of George uh, was not that uh, highly favored. But he was uh, popular among certain elements, and particularly this Spanish-American War regiment. Tillman also had a problem with the bottle, did he not? Drinking. That's that's right. He he did have a problem with the bottle. And uh, Gambling. He uh, raised uh, gamecocks and bet on them, and uh, that led to some uh, jokey kinds of editorials on Gonzalez's part. Uh, some people have been criticizing the lieutenant governor for uh, spending more time in uh, gamecock fights and uh, gambling on them than in the governor's office, and uh, maybe this was violating the law that forbade state officials from gambling. And uh, Gonzalez wrote a stinging editorial that said, well, in order to gamble, you have to risk something of value, and all he was risking was his reputation, and nobody Ooh. would contend that that was of value. Ooh. <laughs> so you get that kind of comment all the time. He had a, a very clever kind of way of writing, but uh, uh, you know he could have made his points in a more constructive manner rather than just zingers, as we would call them today. Let's take a minute and talk about that, because down through history, Gonzalez has always been portrayed as the innocent white knight. But earlier in his career, even when he was working for the News and Courier in Charleston, he had been cautioned by his editor for, you know, there's a better way to express this. You really get kind of nasty in what you're saying. You had a a very long letter exchange between uh, N.G. Gonzalez and uh, Captain Dawson, the editor of the News and Courier, when uh, N.G. Gonzalez was the bureau chief of the News and Courier in Columbia, covering the State House and things of that sort. And he just chided Gonzalez for uh, unnecessarily making people mad, said, we're not going to advance our program, our recommendations, and our editorials if everybody's mad at us. He says, we don't mean you can't criticize people, even on a personal basis, uh, criticize their character, for example. But at the same time, don't do it with such a relish and venom uh, that it's uh, making enemies unnecessarily. So that was a very interesting uh, letter that Francis Warrington Dawson, famous uh, editor of the News and Courier, wrote to N.G. Gonzalez. There was a long history of that kind of personal invective from the state newspaper directed at the Tillmans. The Chronicles of Zarakoboam, which were uh, directed at Ben Tillman and all of his lieutenants in the 1890s, modeled on the books of the Bible, the prophet Zarakoboam. They... We think politics and, and things can get nasty today. They were they were pretty tough. And so this is the kind of background we're dealing with, with a guy who lost a very energetic, determined editor of what had become a state newspaper truly by the turn of the right. century, the largest newspaper in, in South Carolina, had finally surpassed the News and Courier as the, the biggest journal. And we get to January 1903. So let's take the story from there. All right. We have the um, lieutenant governor presiding over the state senate. It's January the 15th, 1903. They adjourn something like, oh, 115, somewhere along there. Tillman 
meets with several people carrying out uh, business relating to the Senate. Uh, He decides to uh, go out. As he's walking out, he's joined by a couple of state senators, Senator George W. Brown uh, and a Senator Tallbird, who had no idea what was about to pass. They just happened to meet in the lobby. They walked out. They were going across Gervais Street. They came to the corner of Gervais and Main, northeast corner, where there was a streetcar transfer station. Now we know that corner is where the local ABC station has its nightly news out on that same corner. As they walked across and were on the corner there at the transfer station, uh, N.G. Gonzalez was coming from the opposite direction on his way home for lunch at that time. Apparently, according to some of the witnesses, he was kind of abstracted, uh, thinking about something. His hands were in his pocket. It was a fairly cold winter day around the mid-50s. And uh, as they come together, Jim Tillman says to Gonzalez, good morning, Mr. Gonzalez, in a sort of a jovial, cordial kind of way. Then he pulls out a gun, uh, shoots Gonzalez, and says, I got your message. Nobody quite knows what he meant by that, but uh, the speculation is that they were thinking that Gonzalez had been chiding him about not being courageous, not being brave, on showing the white feather, to use the old expression. And he thought that was a kind of a hint that Gonzalez was gunning for him, so he's going to preempt that situation and shoot first. So that's what occurred. It turned out that uh, Gonzalez was not armed, had no intention of being armed, apparently. He was uh, shot, uh, staggered over toward a pillar of the uh, transfer station, then staggered a little bit around onto the Gervais Street side and staggered back. A couple of bystanders came up as a Mr. Lamott and a Mr. Sims. They helped him. They said, what would you like us to do? And he said, please take me home to my wife. They tried to hail a cab. They couldn't find one. Uh, So they started helping him walk back to the state office, which was then in the same block further down on uh, Main Street. Mm -hmm. When they got him there, members of the staff came out, and they laid him down appropriately on a stack of newspapers and uh, called an ambulance. Most of the doctors downtown gathered almost immediately and began to minister uh, to him. None of them spotted any kind of weapon on him, even though they were very closely dealing with his body. He began to uh, talk to people. He gave one version of the events, uh, what you would call a dying declaration in legal parlance to uh, his assistant, uh, James Hoyt Jr., and uh, it later figured in the trial as uh, evidence of what happened from his point of view. Then they found uh, an ambulance, and he was taken to the hospital and shortly thereafter uh, operated uh, on. He gave another statement, a dying declaration, in the hospital just before they operated on him. He had already taken some morphine as a painkiller, but had not taken the anesthetic at that time, so was fairly alert when he gave that statement. He lived for another four days, died on the 19th, The authorities moved into action fairly quickly. There was an autopsy performed that same day. Soon thereafter, there was an inquest into the causes of death, and the uh, verdict there was that he had died due to uh, uh, peritonitis, uh, uh, stomach poison brought on by a bullet from uh, uh, James H. Tillman's uh, gun. Now, it might uh, help if we uh, went back a little bit in the narrative and talked about what Tillman was doing all of this time. All right. What did he do after the altercation? Right. Now, uh, he kept his gun out for a while. Senator Tallbird rushed up and was between Gonzalez uh, and uh, Tillman and said, this thing must stop. There was no second shot. Because of that, uh, you find that Tillman begins to back off or sidestep off, as he put it, uh, amongst the streetcars that were gathered around the streetcar transfer station. He gets to the other side, and there he is immediately stopped and arrested by a policeman named George Bolin, who asks for his gun, and he gives the gun over to him. It's later found that he had another gun in another pocket. Uh, Just coincidentally, at that moment, his brother-in-law, husband W. Buchanan, a lawyer and his uh, law mentor, just came up, happened to be there, 
and uh, they walked together uh, to the jailhouse, which was down uh, on uh, Gervais Street behind the uh, city auditorium, the opera house, as they called it, and he was uh, taken inside, and uh, there he uh, surrendered another, the other weapon and was taken upstairs, uh, not to a cell, but to kind of a guest room, and that sort of set the uh, tone of his incarceration there. He was allowed to have his uh, own furniture come in, flowers delivered every day, visits from his wife and from his attorneys, of course. Uh, so that was his side of it. He sent one of his friends down to the state office to see how Gonzalez was doing and uh, see if the wound was uh, fatal. And according to one of them said, well, if I got him where I thought it was, uh, I was aiming, he's, he's not long for this world. So uh, that was going on uh, there. You find that there's uh, legal jostling back and forth uh, almost from the beginning. The, the first formal proceeding they have is a question of whether or not uh, he's entitled uh, to bail. That, that, to me, was a very interesting part of the book because you would have thought with his political connections that, right. yes, he could have gotten bail, but that wasn't the case. That's right. You had a, a hearing conducted by a Chief Justice, young John Pope, uh, who had been a Tillmanite uh, judge, in fact, had voted to uphold the dispensary system that uh, Ben Tillman had put in place. Uh, I was a loyal Tillmanite, but he was also an objective judge, and he concluded that uh, under the bail laws at that time, even though you were generally entitled to bail, if it was a capital murder charge and there was uh, a good bit of evidence uh, pointing that it was uh, premeditated, then you uh, were supposed to deny bail, and he followed that uh, edict of the law rather than his personal political preferences. But at the same time, he could not resist the opportunity to excoriate the newspapers uh, and say that Mr. Tillman, uh, Lieutenant Governor Tillman, had been subjected to a barrage of criticism, the like of which we haven't seen in quite a long time. So he did get in his uh, licks at the press. The next maneuvering that's going on is the attempt to uh, move the venue or location of the trial. Uh, in the interim, we'd had a, uh, a grand jury indictment uh, of uh, Jim Tillman uh, for premeditated murder. Uh, there was also an indictment that got kind of lost along the way for uh, carrying a concealed weapon. That was uh, There was a law at that time that said if you're, you're going to bring a charge against somebody for premeditated murder, uh, and it was committed with a weapon, then you have to bring a concealed weapons charge against them as well, assuming that was factually true. But everybody just forgot about that charge. It wasn't submitted to the jury, even though it was still uh, in existence. The New York Times pointedly brought that up. They just focused on the murder trial. But the big event in the pretrial maneuvering was this change of venue, change of uh, location of the trial from Richland County, where the event took place, into Lexington County, which is known as Tillman Country. All right. They wanted to change the venue, and I think we need to talk about some of the arguments because, that, for example, Senator Tillman got involved, and they defense attorneys led by Patrick Nelson from Edgefield, living in Columbia, but he was right. an, an Edgefield boy. And Senator Tillman said that uh, the lieutenant governor had been condemned from the pulpit. You get into that. I mean, all that was happening is that in some churches, people were praying for Gonzalez to live. They weren't condemning. That, that's right. The defense uh, contended that the uh, atmosphere locally here in Columbia was so polluted that there was no way that uh, Tillman could get a fair trial. He's entitled to a fair and impartial jury under the Constitution. Uh, and they say that everybody was so mad at him here in Columbia that he needed to be transferred somewhere else to have another location for the trial. And the evidence they introduced uh, for the defense in arguing for the change of venue was just as uh, you said, uh, to begin with, there were all these sermons in the local churches, but they tended to be prayers that uh, Gonzalez recovered during that four-day period that he was uh, lingering in the uh, hospital. What I think particularly made them mad was you had a group of uh, prominent local ladies who met for prayers, and they were praying that uh, Jim Tillman would be convicted uh, for murder. Then, of course, you had this monument fund going on. They were raising money for a uh, uh, Gonzales monument, which we have today out uh, near the cathedral. And of course, there was the funeral. As That's you, right. You described it. It was you know, even bigger than Wade Hampton's. I mean, it was huge. 
Yeah, they said it was just a huge funeral. It looked a lot like a state funeral more than just an individual uh, because he was so influential and respected by so many people. There was this large funeral in what is now Trinity Cathedral conducted by the uh, uh, Trinity uh, rector and uh, uh, others and, and the Episcopal bishop. Ellison Capers, That's who, right. who was also a Confederate hero. Had been a Confederate general, in fact. And there were other clergy from the city. I mean, it was almost, you know, right. every prominent clergyman in the city was involved somehow. Right. And all of the uh, businesses closed, even the uh, textile mills, which is very unusual. So it was, in fact, a very uh, impressive funeral and a parade, more or less, to the uh, cemetery overlooking the Congaree and just uh, quite an event. So they concluded that because of this big outpouring of grief for Gonzales, that uh, the uh, Columbia atmosphere was just poisoned as far as the defense was concerned. So they wanted a a change of venue. Uh, They also charged the uh, state newspaper with writing uh, editorials, uh, lambasting uh, Jim Tillman. They did so a little bit at first, but then they uh, brought in people from out of town to write key articles so that they wouldn't be accused of uh, of being biased. But despite that, you find that the judge conducting the change of venue hearing, D.A. Townsend, also a Tillmanite judge, but a very good judge in many respects, concluded that a change of venue was necessary. Uh, it didn't have quite the overwhelming proof of pollution of the local atmosphere that change of venue decisions at that time had. They tended to uh, look for just a um, totally poisoned atmosphere as far as the defense were concerned. And uh, that was not uh, found in this particular case. You didn't have mobs gathering outside the jail and things of that sort. But it's interesting because there were several places where he they, he could have assigned the trial, whether it was right. circuit, but he assigned it to Lexington County. And then they had to gin up a judge. They didn't have a judge sitting in Lexington County. Yeah, that, that was time. the most mysterious uh, part of the whole thing. See, what they were trying to do was get uh, favorable decision makers at every step of the trial. They needed a favorable jury who would be inclined to quit, so they had the trial moved to uh, Lexington County. A transfer of venue had to be to another county in the same circuit. Uh, And Lexington uh, was the best one from the defense standpoint because of the votes that uh, Tillman's had been getting in uh, Lexington County. Uh, Then you need to get uh, a favorable jury of individuals who are inclined to favor the defense. Then you need to get uh, a good judge. And what uh, happened there was that the original judge who was scheduled to be there got sick. Then they signed another judge there and found out Well, he'd already been assigned somewhere else. So the local bar under state law petitioned for the appointment of a special judge. That is permitted, but it's usually occurring when there's no regular judge available. Uh, And there was another regular judge available. I think it was Judge Bennett, and the defense lawyers were afraid of him because he tended to be a very knowledgeable guru of the law, even had his own uh, law school or law classes. And some of the correspondence says, oh, we're afraid of Judge Bennett. So they requested a special judge, and under that law, the uh, chief justice would recommend the appointment of such a judge to the governor, and the governor would make the actual appointment. Uh, So they appointed Frank Boyd Gary, who had just finished being Speaker of the House. He was a person who the Tillmans called Cousin Frank, not by virtue of uh, blood relationship, but by virtue of uh, friendship. Uh, and interestingly enough, he was later elected a regular circuit judge, uh, and his uh, brothers uh, served as judges also. A- another Edgefield connection. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course, the Tillman's base was Edgefield County. George Tillman, Saluda County, but that had been a part of Edgefield. So, Cousin Frank, if you're dealing with conspiracy theories, right. this is just the beginning. Because one of the other officials in the case was Mr. Thurmond. Right. Uh, He was involved in the change of venue, right? That's right, he was. He opposed the change of venue, and he made a pretty good argument uh, in opposition. And he was uh, heard on the question of what county the venue should be changed to. Uh, He was against uh, going to Edgefield because that was too much the home base for the uh, Tillmans. Uh, Saluda County, I think, was out because of the fact that there weren't enough hotels. It was too remote. Railroad connections weren't as good as they they could be. So they ended up in uh, 
Lexington, uh, which was solid uh, Tillman uh, country. This trial became very quickly a national sensation. Right. Didn't have TV 24-7, but the New York newspapers sent reporters to cover this. That's true. The New York newspapers did, and uh, the New York world in particular, a Pulitzer paper that had a little bit of a yellow journalism tinge to it, but was generally pretty diligent in its uh, reporting, sent uh, down a reporter and a sketch artist, mm-hmm. uh, W.H. Loomis, who came up with some very uh, wonderful courtroom scenes. My favorite one actually took place just outside the courtroom. There was a clock that came up from Edgefield to the trial, and they camped out uh, in what looked like old-fashioned western covered wagons, uh, cooking and so forth uh, out in that area, and uh, Loomis captured that and one of his best pictures. But uh, we have the trial uh, started, and it's a, uh, a trial attracting national attention. They, they had telegraphers there who could send out messages all over the country, and their newspaper articles appeared all over the country. And uh, so it was a celebrated trial of that, of that time. And there are stories that abound about, first of all, to get the good jury, they wanted the trial to be in the second week of the judge sitting. For some reason, they thought that was going to be a better... Yeah, there, there is a rumor, which I'm sure you're aware of, that they uh, did a canvas of the potential jurors for both weeks. You know, they'd already listed the names of people to be called to form the what they call the veneer from which the final jury would be picked. And uh, they, the rumor is that they had sent uh, an Edgefield photographer a man named uh, Cover around to call on the potential jurors as if he were selling his photographic wares. And he would have a large array of pictures of prominent South Carolinians, including N.G. Gonzalez uh, and James H. Tillman. And as he showed these pictures, which he was saying, this is, this is the kind of thing I can do. Uh, do you want me to take your picture? He would show these two people involved in the trial and how they reacted to Gonzalez's picture and Tillman's picture would uh, help determine whether they would be acceptable jurors or not. Uh, And the defense attorneys concluded that the venere set for the uh, second week uh, of the court session was more favorable to them than was the jury set for the first week. So that led to some maneuverings in the court that the local business should be dealt with first in the first week, and then we get to the second week where we'd have an even uh, more favorable jury. Uh, so, you know, remember, they've hired a substantial number of the local lawyers there in Lexington, so uh, uh, they were able to get up and say, well, we here at the Lexington Bar uh, think that the local business should be handled first and so forth. All right. Jim, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that you're listening to Walter Edge's Journal, and I'm talking with Professor Jim Underwood about his intriguing book, Deadly Censorship, Murder, Honor, and Freedom of the Press, and I should add, in South Carolina. Let's talk about the photographs for just a second, because I have talked to descendants of lawyers involved in this, of the Nelsons and of the Remberts were involved, and George Rembert was involved in this. And evidently, much was made of the fact that Gonzalez wasn't a real South Carolina, that he was a, quote, a half-breed. Right. Uh, His mother was a distinguished South Carolina family, the Elliots from down in, in Beaufort County, but the Gonzales were Cuban. That's right. And a little bit dark. Right. Uh, so th- there was there was much made of that. And in fact, Tillman had said, both Tillmans had referred to Gonzales as a half-breed or a mixed breed in some of their responses to... Yeah, in um, a way that sort of started the uh, whole quarrel. In uh, 1890, I believe it was, when Gonzalez was still working as bureau chief for the News and Courier, he had written an article criticizing a speech made by then not quite as prominent uh, Ben Tillman, whom they called Captain Tillman at that time. This prompted uh, loyal nephew Jim to write uh, under a pseudonym, uh, Fair Play, in the Winsboro paper, an article in which he had called uh, the uh, uh, author of the uh, earlier article criticizing his uncle a wily Spaniard. Some other times the term was used of treacherous Spaniard, and uh, during uh, one of the campaign appearances in the governor's race in 1902, one of the uh, supporters of Jim Tillman yelled out, uh, he's a half-breed, ain't he? And thank God we served in the Spanish-American War under a full-bred South Carolinian. And uh, so you had comments 
like that. And uh, that's what uh, made N.G. Gonzalez uh, furious at him at that particular point. And remember, he had been, uh, Gonzalez had been very good friends with Jim Tillman's father, yeah. George, uh, Congressman George uh, Tillman. But uh, you have this quarrel breaking out with the son, uh, and he retaliated by blackballing uh, Jim Tillman for the South Carolina club that sponsored the inaugural ball when his uncle was being inaugurated governor. So it just went on and on after that. Well, the jury was selected, and they're on the cover of your book. And you describe who these men were. You had a cotton mill operative. You had farmers. It was a cross-section of the community. Of that community, of it that was. Community, yeah. Jury of peers. Whether it's a jury of uh, Jim Tillman's peer or Angie Gonzalez's peer is another matter, but it was a cross-section of that community. And how long did the trial itself last? Well, it, it lasted from, I believe, uh, September the 28th uh, through uh, October the 15th. Okay, so it's a fairly lengthy trial. It was. Did the prosecutors really give it a go? Did they really try to get a conviction? I think they did. Uh, now, of course, you mentioned Thurman. The prosecutor, chief prosecutor, was solicitor J. William Thurman, Strom Thurman's father. And he was widely known as uh, Ben Tillman's man in Edgefield. But I th- still think he did a, a good, solid, workmanlike job for the prosecution. I, I don't detect any signs of him holding back on it. You, you can't mm-hmm. look into somebody's mind uh, and determine how sincere they were, but he appeared to be doing a good workmanlike job. G. Duncan Bellinger, who was his chief assistant, uh, had just been uh, attorney general uh, and was also a Tillmanite, but he was known as a very ferocious uh, prosecutor and had even uh, had the courage to prosecute some lynchers, even though he lost uh, the case. And his uh, cross-examination of defense witnesses was so vicious uh, that some of them shook a fist at him and said, I'll meet you outside on this. So I, I, he certainly didn't pull any punches on that. But for some reason, there was just a lot of animosity between G. Duncan Bellinger and the chief defense counsel, Patrick Nelson, mm-hmm. uh, and the Congressman George W. Croft, who had been uh, Jim Tillman's uh, law partner. Let me mention one other interesting fact about the uh, attorneys. Uh, J. William Thurman, or Will Thurman, as they call him, uh, had been a solicitor for a while, and while he was solicitor, had himself been tried for murder uh, and acquitted. And his defense counsel were George W. Croft, who is now representing James H. Tillman, and James H. Tillman himself. So uh, the question is asked, uh, can he prosecute the people who saved him from a conviction earlier? Well, he seems to have done it, but, uh, you know, it does raise eyebrows. Oh, what would the 24-7 news cycle do with that? Oh, they would be going on and on about that. uh, You'd just hear nothing but that. So the trial goes on for weeks and then the jury comes back with its verdict. Not guilty. Right. But there were a couple of holdouts in the jury initially. That's right. The first vote had a 10 to 2 vote, uh, 10 for acquittal, and 2 for conviction on a manslaughter charge, not the premeditated murder charge. And they kept after those two until they switched sides. Uh, and you had the uh, unanimous uh, 12 uh, voting for acquittal. What if those two had held out to the end? Would it have been a, a mistrial? That's right. It would have been a mistrial, probably. And uh, the question would then arise of whether or not you want to go to the trouble of spending all that money of putting on a trial again that took so long. Uh, but that didn't happen. You had an acquittal, which uh, a lot of people were, were predicting from the beginning. Mm-hmm. They did stay out for quite a while. They deliberated for 19 hours, so it wasn't, you know, let's uh, vote acquittal and then go home and, as today they'd say, watch the ball game, but uh, they well, did talk about it. Yeah, well, one thing the judge had done is he had sequestered this jury throughout the trial. He had indeed, and what that means is that they are kept apart from the general population, and uh, he also kept uh, newspapers from being uh, distributed to them. Uh, most particularly including the state newspaper. In fact, that was the object of a special motion uh, made at the beginning of the trial that they not uh, have availability of the state newspaper in their jury room or in their hotel rooms or or wherever. They would be kept apart so they wouldn't pick up local gossip. They would focus on 
the evidence in the trial and not uh, the rumor mill. So even though people thought it was a sealed conclusion from the very beginning, at least the judge, I mean, he went through the motion. You, know, you sequestered the jury rather than let right. them go home. That, that's true. And the trial did go on for a number of weeks. Well, the reaction when you talk about, you know, some of the, his support, Tillman supporters cheered when the verdict was there, but there was not a single woman in the courthouse. Yeah, the uh, ladies had uh, left. Uh, they thought that there might be some violence that would break out. Uh, there would be some retaliation against uh, Tillman if he were acquitted. Uh, as a matter of fact, you had marksmen stationed throughout the uh, courtroom who were going to retaliate if anybody tried to attack Jim Tillman uh, in the event of a, an acquittal. Being so mad at him, they wanted to shoot him right there. You even had uh, a telegrapher who was perfectly innocent, uh, sort of roughly questioned by this group. They saw a stranger. Who is he? Maybe he's a hitman or something like that. The ladies, I think, sensed that dangerous atmosphere and just uh, stayed away. And, of course, it was a fairly rough crowd there anyway. Uh, so uh, they were not there at that at that particular time. Well, Tillman's mother walked down, but his wife waited for him, and they had a relatively cool beating is the way you describe it. Yeah, you have uh, two different ways that that's described. Uh, you know, one group of papers say it was a warm greeting, and another one said they uh, that Tillman and his wife, Mimi Norris Tillman, just shook hands, very cool kind of greeting. She was beginning to distance herself from him. Some people think at that time, and they fairly soon began living apart, but uh, uh, that didn't happen uh, immediately. Senator Tillman was not uh, there at the time of the verdict. Uh, his wife had been injured in a carriage accident, and he, I think he was with her, but uh, uh, Jim Tillman's mother was there, and uh, uh, his wife was there. Uh, another version has her waiting for him in the residential section of the Lexington jail, and that was a a nice reunion and so on. It just depends on who you're reading at that time as to what story you get. What happened after the trial, I think, is fascinating, particularly what happened to Jim Tillman. I mean, he even talked about running again for public office. That didn't get very far because this clung to him like pluff mud. I mean, he couldn't, even among his friends, when he talked about running for Congress, they came up with somebody else to to stand. Yeah, one of the Edgefield papers uh, shortly after the verdict uh, said, well, now that the trial is over, uh, we should let up on Jim Tillman and not uh, hound him. However, if he should choose to run for office again, then we should discuss uh, his uh, full record. That was a kind of a warning shot across his bow. A couple of times uh, he uh, put his toe in the water about running for Congress, as you say, and backed away on both occasions. And uh, on one of those, uh, George Croft's son was the one who was elected. George Croft had died uh, shortly after the trial, maybe uh, four or five months after the trial. And he was a congressman. He then. was a congressman uh, in uh, Washington. He died in Washington. Somehow had gotten a, a splinter in one of his fingers, and that had led to poisoning and, uh, and so forth. And that was the first occasion that uh, Joe Tillman was considering running was to replace him. And, and a few years later... He considered again. In fact, he had been endorsed by the local assembly of uh, the members of his party and so forth. Uh, but he backed away again. And the reason he gave for it was that he thought that all of these insults would start again. And he didn't want to get into that. Around that time, uh, people close to him began to back away or die. Uh, and that's when he decided to take this uh, journey to California to uh, seek a better life and a better land. And I, I compared it to old Spanish explorers seeking El Dorado but never finding it. He came back uh, and uh, came down with tuberculosis and died in Asheville April the 1st, 1911, with only his doctor and a nurse present, according to one version. Another version has a doctor and nurse present, but also his nephew Tillman Bunch. Then after that, you have the death announcement in the state newspaper, which is one sentence. I think you'd like to read it. Yeah, Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, Jim, I'd like to read that because, as you point out, rather than using Tillman's death as an occasion to vent rage against their brother's killer, they, meaning the Gonzalez brothers right. who were now running the state, marginalized Tillman's life and death by giving him a one-sentence obituary that is missively stated, Asheville, North Carolina, April 1, 
James H. Tillman, at one time Lieutenant Governor of South Carolina, died here tonight, period. That's it. That's it. That uh, sort of was a signal of what kind of historical reputation he was going to have. Uh, It was not one of the great statesmen who uh, overcame the earlier setbacks and insulting editorials to become a a high official. And, of course, Tillman's critics were – it wasn't just the Gonzales brothers. In fact – the two largest denominations in the state at that time, the Baptists and the Methodists, right. their official newsletters denounced the verdict. So Tillman may have tried to silence, or he did silence N.G. Gonzalez, but he didn't silence. His other critics, as you point out, were just like trying to cut, kill the Hydra. You cut off one head you know, and another. Appears, uh, the editors weren't scared. They weren't intimidated. They kept uh, writing. In fact, there's a famous editorial written by W.W. W. Ball, a famous conservative uh, journalist of that that time, directed to the men of the Fourth Estate, the journalist, and he said, now we need you more than ever. None of us can replace N.G. Gonzalez, but we all need to be forever vigilant about the, what our public officials are doing, uh, what our candidates are saying, and so forth. Uh, and many newspaper editorials uh, referred to Tillman's act as a uh, cowardly act, uh, so he didn't restore his reputation for manly honor, courage. Uh, he didn't restore his uh, political career. So uh, uh, it appears to have been an act of vengeance that, even from his narrow perspective, served no purpose. You talk about the times were pretty rough, and the pictures of a Gonzalez, he's very distinguished, wears a pince-nez, the little glasses right. uh, attached by a ribbon to his shirt. But he was a pretty rough and tough person he himself. He was. He had some violent <clears throat> encounters himself uh, in his younger days. Mm-hmm. One of the most dramatic, I point out, is this uh, melee uh, at the uh, uh, hotel here in town, which you had uh, uh, N.G. Gonzalez uh, and his uh, brother Ambrose uh, fighting with uh, representatives of the Columbia Register over who had the largest circulation in town. That would affect who got the state printing contract. And it was just an all-out uh, uh, fight right there in the lobby of the hotel. And even the members of the printing room staff there at the state came in with all of their equipment and so forth, and they were swinging that around. Uh, you had some uh, violent encounters by uh, uh, Gonzalez uh, with the Calvo family, uh, owners of that newspaper, Uh, But as he points out, I just uh, hit the guy with my pistol, but I didn't shoot him. So I showed more restraint. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as as you discuss in in a sort of a prelude to to this case, the question of freedom of the press in South Carolina from the revolution onward was sometimes rather dicey. To me, one of the more interesting cases— in Greenville, when one newspaper editor, Benjamin Franklin Perry, challenged right. another one and shot and killed him. Right. So do you really think that the Tillman trial, did people begin to back off editors? Because they're pretty rough and tumble editors. Gonzalez wasn't the only one who had a sharp pen. Did they back off? Yeah, that's, uh, that's right. I, I think they did to an extent, but you had some aftershocks. Uh, you had this uh, killing... I think it was 1911, somewhere along about there, of uh, an editor named Carmack in Nashville, Tennessee, shoot out on the streets of Nashville. He had been a United States senator and then became editor of a local paper. Uh, he had offended a local politico, and they had a shootout on the streets there. And the uh, governor, after uh, some of the people involved in that were uh, convicted, uh, pardoned them instantly. So you had a kind of a tolerance of violence as a way of protecting honor. And this Southern concept of honor at that time was that uh, it consisted of showing manly courage and your reputation for manly courage. If it were insulted or you were called a liar, you had a right to reply immediately. And you shouldn't reply through a court suit. You shouldn't reply by countering words with words. You should reply in a very physical way. Uh, and that's what uh, James H. Tillman was doing there. He had uh, tried on earlier occasions to challenge uh, uh, N.G. Gonzalez to a duel, but had not quite made a direct challenge. Dueling was actually, it, it was illegal. Illegal was a, at that time, that's yeah, right. There was, a, there was a state law after the famous Cash Shannon duel. That's right, and they would uh, 
people who wanted to do something like that would meet in this uh, uh, island uh, in the river between G- Georgia and uh, South Carolina jurisdiction, uh, where the jurisdictional lines were fuzzy, uh, and you could perhaps get away with it. In fact, uh, Tillman said after this almost challenge that he had gone to uh, Augusta and rented a hotel room and waited for Gonzalez, even though Gonzalez had never said he would be there. And then he sent uh, Gonzalez a bill for the hotel room. <laughs> so. Well, literally the rough and tumble of politics, Lexington County, I, I know of a, of a campaign in the 19, mid-1930s, very distinguished, large farmer. He was really a planter. He always called himself a farmer, though, right. was running for the House, and he was a devout Methodist. And on the stump there in Lexington County, somebody said from the audience, you know, you know after he'd given his speech, do you smoke? No. Do you drink? No. What kind of man are you? Well, implying because he didn't have any vices, he wasn't a man. And he right. said, I'll show you. He took off his coat and jumped off the platform and beat up the guy who was challenged. He said, now you have your answer. And he also, in his, his letters, would say he never went to a General Assembly meeting without a weapon. Well, they, they say that there were weapons packed by the lawyers in the venue hearing in this particular case, at least that's the report found in the New York World. So I, I think you said in, in your book, uh, South Carolina History, that the uh, average gentleman who wanted to be fully dressed, uh, look fashionable, didn't step out without his weapon. Yeah. Judges lamented this. Said, you know, even young boys feel like they have to have a gun. In the 1890s, we had seven congressmen for had admittedly killed somebody. Um, yeah, that's the most astounding uh, thing. You, know, you, you remember that speech that C.A. Woods, the uh, president of the South Carolina Bar, made on the same day as the Tillman Gonzalez uh, shooting. I said, well, why does this sort of thing happen? And he said, it's the ready availability of the nimble pistol. Uh, that's a direct uh, quote from what he said. And also the uh, coarsening that we underwent uh, during the Redeemer period of uh, using intimidation and violence to uh, wrest control from the re- radical Republicans and the Civil War itself. All of this sort of gave this uh, uh, crude, violent uh, attitude. I don't know that we'll ever have a firm set kind of answer to what led to this kind of violence, but uh, his speech uh, pointed uh, uh, to that ready availability of the nimble pistol as well as Uh, some of these periods of violence that you had. Well, and and of course, lynching was very common. Absolutely. And again, it was the religious papers, the Baptist Courier and the Methodist paper, that began to campaign against lynching in the early 20th century. Now, the Gonzales brothers, although they certainly did not want to promote anything like desegregation, they were anti-lynching. That's right. Because it was a breakdown of law and order. And, and that was the argument that was used by the Baptist courier and, and the Methodist advocate. Yeah. You know, today, and this is a paraphrase, Jim, t- t- today the black man accused of molesting a woman. Tomorrow it might be the judge, the lawyer, the preacher. Where does this vigilanteism stop? So this murder, and it was a murder, right. uh, even though he was acquitted, was really a part of what was going on in all over South Carolina. I mean, right. it, it was it was a violent time. And you mentioned the monument. I think it's the monument, of course, the Gonzales Monument is there, and it is a shaft. Right. <laughs> and it is right there on the lieutenant governor's end of the Capitol. And I think the locals in Columbia may have been making a statement of the choice of locale and the design of the monument. It's very close to the location of the shooting itself, which was on the corner of Gervais and Maine, and then just a few steps down from that, as you get to the Trinity Cathedral, you find the monument, a poignant tribute to N.G. Gonzalez, right there on the doorstep, you might say, uh, of... uh, Lieutenant Governor Jim Tillman's place of glory is Lieutenant Governorship. Well, Jim, we're about to run out of time. Alfred's giving me the the wind-up sign. Any last words that you'd like to leave with our listeners today about 
about your book or you want to apply it to contemporary times, whatever. Microphone's yours. Well, I, I described this whole event uh, as a clash between values, revered values. On the one side, you have uh, the value of human life and freedom of the press. And on the other side, warring with it, is the southern concept of honor, which consists of how you're viewed by other people. Are you viewed as a bold leader, a real man, a courageous person? And the trial was fought over that. You find the southern concept of honor as viewed as your reputation for manliness and courage winning out in that particular time. So that says something about the times. I use this event as a chance to tell a dramatic story, but I also use it as a sense to get an insight into social conditions and attitudes and political conditions of that time, uh, and the outcome shows that. Jim Underwood, the author of Deadly Censorship, Murder, Honor, and Freedom of the Press, thanks for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you learned something from today's journal. This was quite a story, and Jim told it very, very well. He set the stage of a time in South Carolina where violence was pretty much the order of the day. Can you believe that in the 1890s, four out of our seven congressmen had killed somebody and admitted it? The conflict between a code of honor and sanctity of life and freedom of the press was, as he pointed out, the real issue in the trial of Lieutenant Governor James Tillman for the murder of N.G. Gonzalez, editor of the state newspaper. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina ETV Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. Thank you.